Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Curva Mundial. I am your host, Sal Bono, and my next guest is the author of the acclaimed new book, The Nearly Men, the greatest teams never to win the World Cup, and is part of the leadership team for the brilliant and amazing These Football Times. He has also written for The Guardian and The Atlantic. So please welcome to the show, Newcastle supporter, Aiden Williams. Good afternoon, Aiden. Hi there, Sal. Really great to be on. You, you read out those lists of things I've done. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like me. So <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> You're quite welcome. And as I said in the pre-interview, I'm such an admirer of your work that it should feel like you because that's how I perceive this. <laughs> oh, I know you from. So now it's very cool to have a chat. Absolutely. Yeah. And loving this podcast. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And again, I'm not going to bore you with all the... Uh, all the all the things that we just talked about in the uh, brief interview, but um, Aiden had some really nice things to say, and I'm just very touched by it. So uh, thank you. Thank you for listening. And, then we, and of course, everyone else, thanks for listening. But we have so much to unpack and so much to talk about. I want to start off with your fantastic new book, The Nearly Men. It is your second book. And in a world and era where we are obsessed with winning and finding perfection and seemingly no amount of therapy can quell the needs for both in our society, this book serves up all the great male players who have failed to win the world's most coveted prize when it has mattered the most. So how did this idea come about? Yeah, you're right. Obsession with winning is a lot what it's all about now. Um, but... I think sometimes those who don't win have the better story because it's, it's they, they leave something behind sometimes. There's a legacy, perhaps. There's the pain, which there's something poetic about. There's always poetic uh, poetry to be found in disaster and disappointment and defeat and despair and all these things. But quite often, when you're talking about a tournament like the World Cup, because it's so limited, um, you know, it's a very small sample size for any team things have to come right at the right moment and it doesn't necessarily result in the best team winning. Um, and I think we can all cite examples where we think, you know, the best team not to win it was maybe people think the Dutch or the Brazilians in 82 or something like that. Um, there's any number of examples, but each of these teams that didn't win are often thought of more highly than, than those who did. You know, you think of the Dutch of 74, they remember more, more fondly than the Germans who beat them. You think of Brazil in 82, likewise, for all the, the great story about Paolo Rossi in Italy and so on. Uh, Hungary in 54, the other uh, main contenders, but there's others I go into in the book, obviously. But each of these, they, they leave something extra behind um, that is enhanced by the fact that they lost. You know, had they won, maybe we wouldn't feel quite as fondly about some of these sides as we do when they lost because it's that sort of lack of fulfillment it's the the agony that we or that i certainly feel as a as a watcher or a studier of world cups and uh things in the past or things that i've witnessed myself you know i feel the pain of their defeat because to me it was an injustice but you know i'm sure they feel <laughs> doubly so but is, is there a solace to be found in the fact that they're more loved than those who beat them, uh, remembered better and thought of more fondly. But I think it, it does go hand in hand, though. The defeat needs to come for that extra love to, to exist, because I don't think it would exist in the same way had they won. So it was, a, it was born from those ideas. 
Um, I do mention in the book that it's partly, and you mentioned Newcastle United, um, it's partly growing up in my, my formative years as a Newcastle fan in, in my sort of teenage and early 20s was during the Kevin Keegan era of the mid 90s and the painful yeah. near miss that that side had. So I think um, the way that team's thought about so fondly, despite not winning and more so than the team that ultimately beat them. Um, I, you know, I think that's, that's served a part in, in planting the seeds as well. But when it comes to World Cups is where I feel it the most. You know, what's funny is that what you're saying about the World Cup, I agree with you because there is something so... It, it, even as a neutral, when I'm a huge Azzurri fan, as you know, and as the audience should know at this point, but so like when they're out of a tournament, as they will be this fall, um, I sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a touch subject, but I yeah. sort of sit and go, okay, now I have to watch as a neutral. And that is a whole new experience for me. But then I don't really latch on to a team, but it, it is something where that final becomes, it feels more epic. And it feels something that, okay, I don't have chips in this, but I can't wait to see what happens. And it always ends up being, as you said, the second best team is the one that I feel for the most. The fact that Luka Modric and Croatia in the last World Cup had this fantastic run and, and a lot of pundits were like, it's a Cinderella story. Well, if you watch Croatia over the years, you know it's not a Cinderella story. But what it is, is that we don't know if we're going to get to see Croatia again this great anytime soon because it's that golden generation. Or in 2010, another fantastic Dutch side, you know, Wesley Snyder, the top of the world, Trevor Winter should have won the Ballon d'Or that, that year, gets to a World Cup final and brings Spain, arguably the greatest team, country team of the 21st century, to the brink. And loses in overtime, you know, the Nigel de Jong kick, of course, was <laughs> people people will remember. But it is, it was again another one of those circumstances where wow, like I as as cool it was to see Spain win their first World Cup, I sort of sat there going, Man, like Wesley Snyder, and he's playing for a team, a club team that I in theory should hate. You know, it was just it was one <laughs> But I felt so sorry for him. And I think a lot of it harkens back to when I was a kid in 1994, watching Roberto Baggio lose. And as yeah. and yeah. that's and I think that's plays a subliminal role in it. And I want to look at some of the names who have failed to win a World Cup. As I mentioned, Snyder and I mentioned Moldrick, but you know, in recent years you had Messi and Robin, Johan Cruyff, of course, in the 70s, Socrates in the 80s, Paolo Maldini, Roberto Baggio, all these names and players become runners up. And their stories, as you have highlighted already, seem to loom just as large as those that win. But now what happens in a circumstance like 1990, for instance, where Maradona wins in 86, but loses in 1990, but everyone still remembers that West German side to win. So, or Brazil in 94. So, or, so what happens to the runners up that have already won, but may not have been that class of players that did? Yeah. Well, I think the likes of Maradona, you can easily forget um 1990 in his whole career path because 86 i mean that that's one 86 and i guess brazil in 1970 would be two examples of um sort of peerless winners if you like 
you know, we, we, I, I guess you can still think of things where it might have gone differently in certain games on the way through. But, you know, they're winning teams, or in case of 86, one player probably, rather than the whole team, that are held in such high regard um, as a winner, whereas some of the other winners aren't. So I think, yeah, you have to you have to skip over a few because of that. But you can you can talk of other, you know, we, I guess it, it it helps when you feel like the, the right team has won the World Cup. So when you're mentioning France 2018, yes, you do get the pain of Croatia, but you probably think France were the best team and therefore it was the right result overall. Um, the USA 94 World Cup's a great example, though, of the pain and that Roberto Baggio, everything he did to get Italy to that final, Italy were not a good team in 1994. You know, right. they were mis- misled by a coach that they didn't want um, for all his huge achievements at club level. You know, he was, uh, Arrigo Sacchi was very unpopular as the national right. team coach. Um, the, the team was misfiring in the group stages all over the place, lost to Ireland, um, barely scraped past Norway with only 10 men. Uh, and nudged them way through to the to the knockout rounds. But then Baggio just took over, dragged them all the way to the final. And then when they needed him once more, that's when he couldn't couldn't deliver again, having got them all that way. But they, they've got him remotely close to that final without him. Not a chance. I agree. But it's it so I mean you, you feel the pain of him, especially because following on from what happened in Italy in 1990, you know, maybe you were too young for this one, Sal, but I remember it vividly. Um, the, the pain that Italy was supposed to win that World Cup. Oh, is, that's so that's yeah. my favorite tournament ever. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> like that's the th- so, like, as a kid, as I was six when that tournament happened. I remember it vividly. And I remember going, like, oh, we're the home team. And I just learned what a home team was. And it's, <laughs> we're going to do this. And obviously, it doesn't. And, and so, if you of- put it in the context of the time, you know, Serie A was the Super League of, of its day. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, late 80s, early 1990s, this is where everybody who was anybody was. Um, you know, maybe it was, it was a three foreigner rule. So it was only the elite of the foreign players who got to go there and the best Italians could live up to that. So the standard was, was astonishingly high. All the best players from the world played there. Uh, and, and then you have all these futuristic stadiums being built, you know, San Siro being fairly new at the time. Um, various others that maybe have since been ditched, like the Stadio Delhi Alpi in Turin and so on. But, um, you know, it, it looked so glorious and futuristic. It was the heart of football at the time. You know, it was the centre of the footballing world. And then you had somebody like Baggio bursting on the scene with that incredible goal against Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. uh, in the group stages. Uh, Scalacci and all that incredible story. And it just seemed to be the, the momentum pushing, pushing, pushing to do what every Italian knew was going to happen right at the point where it didn't happen. And, you know, Maradona in Naples, you know, uh, what a mistake to play in Naples. But hey, Maradona in Naples, rolling that penalty in to effectively knock, knock Italy out. And that was it. It, it was the, the pain that sort of come down from the, the ever-increasing highs must have been desperately, desperately uh, tough for Italy to take. It is still a tournament that what I love about it and I know, so you've written a World Cup book, so we can talk about a World Cup. Because <laughs> what's funny is, is that the common theme, the bizarre, unintentional common theme of season three is, is that the topic of Baggio comes up a lot. And I did not intend it for this to happen, but it does, and which is great. So this is all following that motif. Um, but interesting enough is, is that what I love about 
people of a certain age. And whether you witnessed it at six years old, like I did, or 60 years old and happen to still be alive 30 years later, um, you remember that tournament so vividly more than any other World Cup, because I think the people that did watch it may have gotten a glimpse of what the last true World Cup would feel like. Do you get that or am I just being way too romantic about it? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I do think it was kind of on the cusp. It was between the old and the new. So USA 94, I think, signaled the start of uh, a different era, a bit more, um, I don't know, a bit, bit more commercially focused perhaps, but that that's not to criticise the USA because I think that's how FIFA were changing as well. Correct, yeah. Um, and, and I think USA sort of captured it perfectly and pushed it on to the next level, which is obviously going uh, more and more now. Whereas Italia 90, there was still a little simplistic things about it. You know, maybe not as much as the, the ones I recall from my youth would be 82 and 86 when being younger. They're the first ones I remember. Right. And, you know, there was a bit of naivety to it all. And Italia 90 still had a little element of that whilst also being the start to push us towards what USA 94 then took up another level. And, yeah, it, it's very much on that cusp. And... You know, you still had stadiums where people could just rock up uh, and, and get themselves in because there were plenty of spare seats for some of the games that were less right. popular. You still had um, the Iron Curtain um, for all Berlin Wall had fallen. You know, you still had the Eastern European countries that were a bit mysterious and we didn't know that much about other than certain players had cropped up in the European Cup final or something like that. There was still that element of the unknown, which is completely gone by now. Um, and it, well, I guess that's gradually over the 30 odd years since then it, it's changed utterly of course but you know back then it was still very much the unknown or I think from from your part of the world right, the USA team that was your first qualified qualification in 40 years and this was yes. college kids and that you know this is amateur stuff compared to what football in the USA has become uh, which is astonishing to, to think back. It's not that long ago. And it was so utterly different to what, oh, even what it was four years later for the USA, let alone what it is now. Um, you think of Costa Rica also from, from right. your region, utterly unknown and astonishing everyone from, from Scotland in their opening game. You know, that, that was, that was actually baffling to people in Europe that the quality, you shouldn't, it's a, it's a daft you know, view, naive view, ignorant view, if you like. But that's how people still thought at the time. They thought the same about African nations, despite right. all evidence to the contrary. You know, Morocco had done well in 86, topping England's group. Uh, Cameroon, Algeria, even more so in 82, shocking West Germany. You know, the, all the evidence was there, but everybody's mindset still ignored it. And then suddenly Cameroon come along, beat Argentina and go all the way to the quarterfinal and nearly beat England. So, you know, there were so many things there that were that little bit of naivety, that little bit of ignorance from, from, the, uh, from Western Europe, I guess, and, and probably from South America too, uh, towards the rest of the world. But the world was changing and it was, um, it, and, and the World Cup was changing, yeah. And Italia 90, very much on the cusp of that. But the sort of operatic failure of Italy just enhanced all that allure. In, in this country, we had sort of Pavarotti and Nessun Dorma as the theme tune yeah. for the television coverage. And that sort of, that, that just escalated it all as well. Um, to make it just seem so grand, so impressive. Uh, and that just, I think, added to the tragic element of it all. 
but that adds to it that adds a level of beauty as well I mean, you know england had their own tragedy at the same stage as italy that year and um, well who knows what would have happened if the penalties had gone a different way it is that's, that's the beauty of it it's all the what if isn't it that's what's so intriguing and enticing in such a short tournament like i say it's a small sample size compared to a league where you know the best team generally wins barring a a very close run that could go either way. Uh, a World Cup is not always won by the best team because it's such a short, short tournament and a little bit of luck here and there, uh, and the best team can be gone early. In all of your research, and in, in putting together this fantastic book, who would you say would be a team that won that wasn't the best at that tournament? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I would say most definitely, if we go back into the mists of time, West Germany in 1954 okay. definitely were not the best because that Hungary team, so it's this Ferenc Pushkas, Hidaguti, Koksis, Bokbosik, uh, to butcher a few other names in Hungarian. Um, they, these guys were light years ahead of everybody. They'd won, or sorry, hadn't been beaten in four years prior to the World Cup. They hadn't been beaten in two years after the World Cup. They won every game during the World Cup, bar one. So they only lost once in six years, and that was the World Cup final. Um, had it not rained that day, maybe they would have won. If Pushkas hadn't been injured by, ironically, West Germany earlier in the tournament, maybe they would have won. We'll never know. But that, I think, is a clear example of the, the best team of an entire era, not just of a tournament, uh, not winning. I think when it comes to, say, Netherlands in 74, I think that's a slightly more romantic view because West Germany were very good as well. You know, they were European champions. Right. They're maybe not quite on their loftiest peak anymore, but they, 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 and they weren't so far removed from Dutch total football either. So it's, it's probably a bit more subjective then. Um, but potentially, I, I would still say that's another example. Um, I think, um, let me see, other winners. I'd, Mm. It, it's really quite tricky. It's really quite tricky because there's always been little controversies here and there that, that feed into it. You know, were Argentina in 1978 the best team in that tournament or were they sort of helped along the way? Uh, you know, without delving into the murky political uh, intrigue of that tournament, you know, there's a little bits of suspicion along there. So were they? I don't, I'm not so sure. In more modern times, um, Brazil in 1994, I don't think were particularly great, but were, I don't think the opposition was either as such. I think right. some of the best teams had fallen by the wayside, but I think there was a lot who were a similar standard and they just had Romario that shoved them slightly above the rest. So possibly that's fair. 1998, I don't think the best team won. I don't think France were that, that good, if I'm being brutally honest. What's funny is, is that I, I don't tend to disagree and it's also a tournament, France 98, I don't remember that much. And that's the thing is that it seems to be the most forgettable tournament of my lifetime. <laughs> and, I, and that's not a disrespect. Like, I mean, France has hosted like great tournaments in, since. And it's just a, the only thing that I really truly remember from it. And this is just being, and I don't even know if it was like, if it was like a conscious thing. It was cool to see South Africa crop up in France 98, but that's really about it. And obviously that was my, I was would have been 14 at the time. So it was probably my introduction to Thierry Henry and Zidane, even though they were probably, I think, both maybe playing at Juventus at the time. 
came into the fold for me. And, but that's really about it. But generally, like, even as much as the World Cup in 2002 in Korea, Japan, it was, I mean, it was monstrous to wake up at 2, 3 a.m. and turn on a game. <laughs> I'm still in high school at this point. So it's like, watch a match, take a nap, go to class. It was bizarre. Um, so I remember things about that tournament, but murky because I was half awake, half asleep. But I do remember getting up early just to watch Italy. And then when Italy got booted, I only watched the final because there was no way I could do that every day. Um, and <laughs> the final was exhilarating. It was cool to see Ronaldo and Ronaldinho win and that Brazil squad, I would say, was totally deserving of it. But France 98 is the one that sort of just wait, oh yeah, I have to remind myself that that tournament happened and what happened in it. And I, and it's, I tend to agree with you. And I don't know if it's because I wasn't that crazy about watching the team that won. I don't know. Yeah, I, I know. It, it's, it's kind of one of those where the, the narrative that's been put on it after the fact has kind of enhanced the team's abilities in people's minds. So this whole... Um, that that team sort of representing the mix, the cultural mix of France in a better way than had possibly gone before. Uh, Bleu, Blanc, and, oh, I, I, whatever. I, I can't remember the, the phrase, but, you know, there's white, there's black, and there's North Africans in the team. Every sort of cultural heritage of, of French society represented. There was, there was people of Eastern European heritage as well. Um, uh, and And... You know, I, I think Zidane being the figurehead of that kind of helped in some ways and that enhanced that appeal, enhanced that sort of overall narrative, that overall story of this, this team representing the new France, if you like, mm -hmm. um, building on the success of, of what the country become uh, in, in terms of its racial mix uh, and showing that in a positive light against a backdrop of a less positive light of, you know, what was really going on in, in sort of poor neighbourhoods and so on. Um, in Paris and beyond. So I think a lot of that though has been superimposed onto that team and it makes us think Zidane, Zidane was all conquering in that tournament like he possibly was in 2006 when right. he was magnificent. But in 1998, he wasn't really. He scored two goals in the final and that masks a lot. Um, but, you know, he was ill-disciplined in the group stage, gets sent off for a stupid stamp on the Saudi player. Misses two games. France nearly get knocked out by Paraguay. They, he comes back in and they nearly get knocked out by Italy. You know, it goes to penalties after a sort of drab nil-nil draw. Um, so really, either team could have won that. And then they, they get past a good Croatia side in the semi-final. But they only really won the final so comfortably because Ronaldo was there in body but not spirit. Uh, it would have been a wholly different, different picture if this had been the normal Brazil. And I don't even think Brazil were... Um, exceptional. Ronaldo was at the peak of his powers, though. He was, without doubt, the greatest player in the world at that time, despite still being so young. He, he was a better player than Zidane at that time, to my mind, um, and could have had a bigger impact on it. I also think the Dutch, who Brazil only got passed on penalties in the semi-final with Bergkamp in inspired form, um, scoring some magnificent goals along the way, notably against Argentina in the quarterfinal. I think they were a better team than France as well. Um, but 
events conspired, um, Ronaldo had his convulsive fit and, and simply shouldn't have been playing and well, he may as well not have been playing for all he was able to contribute. That's how France won so comfortably. And Zidane, sure, he got two goals and that makes him the, the big hero. But I don't think he actually did much of great value during that tournament, oddly, for, for a player of his ability. Um, but I think the two goals in the final makes us all think he was like uh, a hero of the World Cup. Right. And that France met their destiny because of this racial mi mix and the whole uh, the whole sort of narrative that's been put on it after the fact. But nah, they were not the best team in that World Cup for me. You know, what's funny is that I look at the them in France right now, the reigning champs. I look at the team that was a, that won in Russia. And if you would pit them against the team that won at home, the team in Russia wins comfortably. Like I would even say, like I would even give like some ridiculous scoreline, probably five, two, it's a much stronger, it's a better team. But what is cool about the team in Russia is, is that it's, diversity realized in the sense of the heroes now are not the complexion of you and I it's the it's it's everything that was talked about in France 98 but then fully come together in Russia in 20 2018 you know it's so it's 20 years after the fact um it is something that when you see the two teams both, you know, in all of the statistics and everything that had happened, it's, it is interesting to see how great the country has become as a footballing nation and as a nation leading the charge and what the new Europe looks like. Yeah, very much so. And I think they were head and shoulders above everyone else in 2018. And yeah. I, you're absolutely right. You know, Mbappe was sort of bursting on the scene. He seemed absolutely unstoppable at times. Uh, I just remember him bursting through against Argentina in that uh, was it last 16. Uh, fantastic match, but the way he was bursting through, and the only way they could stop him was to bring him down. It's whether they did it before they got to the penalty area or after they got to the penalty area. That seemed to be the only the only question uh, of just how soon they could chop him down. But he, he was absolutely unstoppable. Um, and yeah, there was plenty of other supporting cast to go along. Griezmann was obviously in, in fine form. And there were, the, the, I guess the similarity to 98 is they had a striker who couldn't score with Olivier Giroud. But I, I think uh, Giroud contributed a whole lot more to that victory than Stefan Givarch ever did in 1998. And he was, he was dire. He came to Castle shortly after and didn't last about three months. Scored once and that was a fluke. Uh, he, he was a dreadful, dreadful player, whereas Olivier Giroud was a fine forward. Uh, he just didn't happen to score in that tournament, but he was vital to the way the team played and the way the, the structure worked and the way their attacks were built, despite not actually finishing any of them off. So, yeah, infinitely superior team in 2018 and, and without doubt the, the, best, the best team in that tournament. I think Belgium were obviously really good and Croatia, as you mentioned as well, uh, were, were close. Um, but no, France was, it, it just seemed all, all along, I don't know what you felt, but I felt through most of the, as soon as we reached the knockout stages, it just seemed to feel that France were going to win and nobody's going to stop them. I agree. And what's funny is, is that I think not since the World Cup in 2006, where now actually I'm wrong because now I'm about to say something. I feel like we've had in every World Cup since 2006, the two best teams of the tournament ended up in the final. But 
that tournament especially you're right like france everybody there just seems superhuman even though olivia Giroud didn't score he was as you said he was still so vital to that team and maybe because of just the fact that like he's uh, an anomaly of just how do you run that much sweat that much and your hair stays perfectly <laughs> how how does it like i need neil degrasse tyson to explain to me the physics of how this happens but uh, <laughs> but uh Giroud's, like perfect features aside you have nagolo kante you have you know Larice, who's actually for the first time probably in his career one of the best goalkeepers on the planet and it's just all of these things came together and that whole team just looked like the avengers coming out and just going to just steamroll but then here was croatia that just sort of they brought if, if france was new world football croatia was old school football with just beautiful tactics simplistic approach to the game it's that famous johan cruyff um quote where he says football is a simple game but it's difficult to play uh but it's difficult to play simple football i'm butchering that quote but it's something along the line <laughs> yeah. where i that's what it was it was the, it, to me it was clash of the titans and i fought and again maybe because of, of being a neutral i saw that this was this is wow these are the two most deserving teams because i kept an eye on croatia the whole time because they were just stunning everybody but i'm in the back of my head going if you followed this team in qualification, if you saw the caliber of players that they just have, you know they're going to do something immaculate. And they did. But France, yeah, they were just the steamroller. When I look at the 2014 World Cup in Brazil, yes, West Germany is the better team. Of course they should have won. But in the back of my head, I'm still thinking, like, this is Messi's tournament. This is Argentina's year. They're going to do it. And they don't. Yeah. I mean, that's another great narrative, that, that one of Argentina in, in 2014, because, you know, the whole tournament was set out for, had it mapped out, it would have been Brazil against Argentina in the ah. Maracanã. And Brazil, interestingly, you know, obviously it all went horribly, horribly wrong for them in the semi-final, but, you know, they, they'd mapped it out so they wouldn't have to play at the Maracanã till the final, because they were so scarred from what happened to them in 1950. Right. Um, with the or the defeat to Uruguay when they should certainly have won the World Cup. So, yeah, I guess there's another example of a, the team that definitely was the best that didn't win there. Uruguay um, overcame, well, overcame the odds. Well, yeah, they were a good team themselves. But anyway, that, the scars of that lived long. And Brazil in 2014 scheduled the whole thing to avoid the Maracanã. They played there loads of times since, but not in a home World Cup. And they just couldn't. They, they just had to avoid it as much as possible. They couldn't avoid it for the final had they got there. And, you know, the, if it had been against Argentina with Messi, uh, that was the, the stuff of, well, it could have been either the perfect story for them to beat Argentina in the Maracanã in the final, or it could have been the worst of all nightmares to lose to them in the Maracanã in the final. Right. As it is, I guess they inflicted a whole new nightmare on them to avoid that situation <laughs> with the 7-1 defeat. Uh, and new scars that came up came from that. But, you know, the whole, the whole narrative of it, and Messi and the, the Argentina fans, which were singing away throughout the, throughout the tournament on the Copa Cabana and elsewhere. Right. You know, again, we talk of building momentum. And that was, that was one that just seemed to be heading that way. For all they got in close scrapes throughout, they weren't sort of head and shoulders above anybody. They weren't 
necessarily the best team. I, I do think equally we, we kind of over-egged how good Germany were because of that 7-1. If you compare everything else through that tournament, I know that's sort of saying, ignore this big example of how good they are just here. But if you focus on everything else, <laughs> they and Argentina had close scrapes throughout. You know, Germany only just edged past Algeria in right. the first knockout round. They... Um, they had a narrow win over France in the quarterfinal. It was all very close, and yeah, they got through. They got it done. But the, the magnitude of that 7-1 kind of masks all else, and we think, oh, well, obviously they were way ahead of everyone else, whereas really the, the, the reality of that game is that Brazil totally lost their heads and fell apart, and Germany just took advantage of it. They were a great, great team, absolutely, but I don't know that they were so far ahead of everybody. And obviously the final itself was extremely close and right. frankly, Argentina should have won it. Right. The, the final was an amazing slugfest and it was, and again, I'm watching this going, I think, I think Messi, we're going to get that Messi magic. He's going to pull it off. It's South America is going to explode or implode depending on, you know, the fact that Argentina is going to win in Brazil, but it's, it didn't happen that way. And you're right. Like I, I've, fall, I've fallen into the naivety of the fact that Germany just trounced Brazil in that 7-1 lashing, thinking, yeah, right, the, the two best teams, of course, ended up in the final. But you're right. As you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, right. They, they sort of just – they just did enough to get to that game against Brazil. So – Oh man! I, and, I, and now I'm having these epiphanies as well. <laughs> so that's that's good tournament playing itself. You know, you have to find the way to get through, and sometimes that's a comfortable win, and sometimes it's it's scrapping your way through a narrow yeah. clash against some team you didn't expect to be stuck against, like Algeria. But when it comes to the final, you're right. The, the messy magic. He, he'd saved them so many times, not quite to Baggio levels of saving of '94. In, in terms of his heroics, but, you know, several, especially in the group stages, he'd popped up with a last minute winner to, to get them through against uh, Iran, I think, and um, Bosnia as well. Right. Um, you know, the, these were games that they would have probably, if they'd drawn rather than won, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. But still, he, he sort of popped up when they needed him. And it's just like, right, okay, no one else is going to do it. I'll sort it out. Here we go. In the final itself, the chances didn't fall to him, barring one. Right. And, uh, but the best chances fell to Higuain. And he's not the most clinical of strikers. I mean, as a follower of Italian football, you'll know from his career, Juventus and, and others, that he's, you know, he's good. He's very good, but he's not the very best. His and biggest his problem. Yeah, you're right. Because here's the thing. In my opinion, if you want to be the best, you show up when it matters the most, right? Higuain yeah. will put up, no, in his prime at Napoli, especially at Napoli, uh, Juventus, he would put up numbers that you would sit back and go, oh, my goodness, this man truly is one of the most elite strikers of the modern era. But when the game counted the most and it was on his shoulders, Michael Jordan, he was not. He is not <laughs> the person who you pass the ball to. I, there's a mental block with him. And I don't know, and it and it continued when when his brief stint at AC Milan, his brief stint at Chelsea, um, and in his early year and his early career in MLS at Inter Miami, whenever there's slight criticism or there's a game that matters and there's something 
where he's got to turn up and be the hero, it you see someone falling apart right before yeah. your eyes. And it is devastating because you sit there want to slap him in the face and give him the Mickey from Rocky speech and go, get up, you know, like just scream <laughs> at him like he's your, like you're a boxing trainer in the corner because you know what he's capable of. But it, it, he just falls apart again. Did, and in that World Cup final, it was oh a my God. example of it. I mean, you, you could look at other things, you know, Manuel Neuer should have been sent off earlier right. in the game. And who now, who knows how it would have played out differently had that happened. But yeah, these chances that fell to Higuain, he, he put one in the net, but he was miles offside. Right. The others, the others he scuffed. It's almost like he had too much time to think about them when he got put clean through. Sometimes if you work on instinct, it, it's easier. You know, you don't have to think about it. Your body just takes over muscle memory and all of that. It just happens. But sometimes you get too much time and the little doubts creep in. If you're talking exactly as you say, his, his past and, and future beyond this game was that when it really, really mattered in the biggest games, he wasn't quite able to do it. And those little, those little thought processes will kick in about what he's about to do and how he should do it. Whereas if it was just a little snapshot on instinct, maybe it would have been better. But sure. even, even then, you know, we talk about Messi in that tournament, the whole narrative of Argentina, the, the, the sort of deference to him from some of his teammates at times hindered Argentina as well. And I don't mean sort of how they spoke or how they acted. I mean, how they played. Even late on in the final, in extra time, when they're a goal down, closing, closing moments, there's, there's an attack from Argentina. And the ball, in, instead of, I can't remember who it was now, um, Palacio potentially they had a chance or uh, the opportunity for a shot from a fairly central position at the edge of the box didn't take the shot he, he passed the ball out wide from a central position shooting opportunity he passed the ball out wide to Messi and overhit it and sent it out for a throw in like you're in the last few minutes of a World Cup final take it on take the responsibility don't just defer to that great man over there who you want to save you because you're in the better position to save your country than he is right now. Take it on. But people wouldn't, they weren't brave enough. I, I think there was a little bit of that. You're right. And I think it was a learning mistake now because when you watch the Copa America final from last summer, Messi was very good, but he was not messy. He was, he was messy with a Y, not messy with an I. Um, <laughs> uh, Whereas the hero of that tournament, or that final, I'm sorry, not the tournament, the hero of that final becomes Angel Di Maria because Di Maria scores that lone goal, but sits, but in that moment, he probably said to himself, let me get it done. Let me just get it done and get it done early, and then we'll figure out what happens afterwards. He took that responsibility. He did what almost every player just a few years prior in that hot summer night in Brazil didn't do. And that was, let's, let's, let me just take the shot. And it ends up being Messi's tournament and it ends up being Messi's trophy and Messi this and Messi. And of course, you know, if there are a long career of trying to finally win something at an international level, more than an Olympic medal, that moment, that beautiful moment happens. Um, as I call it, the summer of Maradona's spirit. On the Saturday night, Argentina wins and in his home country. And on Sunday night in his adopted country, Italy wins the Euro. So, but I look at that final as, oh yes, Argentina learned from their mistakes from what happened that hot summer night in Brazil. 
and it looks as if they're not the tactic is not going to be anymore pass the Messi, he'll give it to the striker or just feed it to the striker when you can't see Messi or you there's like 50 people around him um and i'm wondering now if they continue with that philosophy to Qatar this winter which is bizarre to even say that there's a world cup happening in the winter but um you know what do you feel about that um yeah i well i think possibly it's evolved a bit as well because i think 2014 and arguably 2010 that era was sort of peak messy i think and therefore it's a little bit more understandable that there was a little bit of that that thought that he's the one who's going to take us because that's what Maradona had done. And mm. I think it's something in the Argentinian psyche, the, the sort of um, the appeal of the, the pibe, as they call him, you know, the, right. the poor kid made good. That's who Maradona was. Now, Messi is a bit different. His story is a bit different. But in terms of that talent and always looking to the number 10 to be the man who, who is the centre of everything, the fulcrum of everything for Argentina, Everything must flow through him uh, for, for, for anything to succeed. That, that seems to be the sort of the story that they follow. And they were, they were expecting him to be able to do what Maradona had done in 1986 and sort of take control. But Maradona was a big team player for all his individual talents. Right. He was a big part of enhancing the team. And the overall, he didn't take on everything himself. I'm sure there were moments when he, when he absolutely did, as I as an England follow him no all too well um but he also brought others into it as part of the team and the team functioned through him but with him if you then just purely look to that great person and expect them to be able to do that for you without the rest of the team the other cogs in the wheel working together it doesn't really work i think for argentina 2010 was such a wasted year it felt like they had to get it out of their system to have maradona as a coach uh, so they had him in 2010 and they almost threw they basically threw the tournament away by having a coach who didn't know what he was doing because they felt they had to at some point so that that ruined some of Messi's prime years earlier prime I guess in the duel the thing I'm sorry I'm sorry I, like what's yeah. interesting about Maradona as the manager was that there was so much that he had said in press conferences so many shenanigans that he needed to have a gold toilet. He needed to have all these, all this rider of ridiculousness that he needed in order to prep. But I sometimes think to myself, everything that you're saying is correct. He didn't really know. He's, he's clearly showing it. He's being so outlandish. It's got to be about him, me, me, me. The ego has landed. But in a lot of ways, I wonder if it was a defense tactic to protect Messi and the players maybe he, i think yeah i think there's a lot to that i think he was yeah he was taking the attention away from the players and for everything i said about him as a player that, that's not how he was you know he he wasn't deliberately drawing the attention to himself on the pitch you know off the pitch is a whole other matter <laughs> um but on the pitch you know his ability lifted him above others sure but he functioned as part of a team and yeah i, I think a, a lot of that was trying to take take away the pressure on messi who was already by this point well known and well, you know, well had had the pressure coming on him to deliver to deliver for Argentina and to prove his Argentinianness as well. Of course, right. was another factor that Maradona never had to deal with. Correct, correct. Um, but I think by by 2014 it had just gone too far. Maybe Messi had become too good that 
you know, Argentina, they, they, they had a whole lot of good players. This is not 1990 Argentina we're talking about, where it's a <laughs> bunch of cloggers who couldn't, who didn't know how to play, you know, that he dragged through by sheer force of will. This was, this was a very talented team throughout the team. You know, we talk about Higuain's faults, but, you know, there was a lot of good players in this team. And yet there was still that little bit of difference. So I think when, you, when you're talking about how they've adjusted over the years, I think there's probably two sides to it. Partly it's just the passage of time and therefore Messi isn't quite at that level anymore. That sounds a bit ridiculous to talk about that, not being quite at that level, but you know what I mean? He's yeah. not quite at his prime. Uh, so I think there's some of that. Um, but yeah, the, the lessons learned because they had to get themselves across the line to win something. He desperately, desperately wanted to win something. Because of course, following that World Cup in 2014, they reached the Copa America final twice. Um, well, the, the, the genuine Copa America and then the Centenario version within right. the next couple of years. Lost in the final to Chile both times. Right, yes. Um, Messi missing a penalty, I think, on one. Uh, and Higuain was part of those as well. You know, it, it just seemed like the, this story was never going to hit, uh, hit, hit glory, hit victory. And they haven't won anything since the early 90s, which, you know, to, to some of us from, from this part of the world... <laughs> From from my country in particular, that doesn't sound like too that doesn't sound like too bad. I'm, I'm, I'm trying I'm trying not to get too bitter about what happened last summer. So. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> hey, but you have the lionesses, and the lionesses are rewriting British yes. history, yes. and that's yes. what's important. And that's like it's sort of like the American women. It is like the American <laughs> women. Like I I I might not wave the flag for the men's team, and that's no disrespect to them. I, I have a men's team. For a women's team, the U.S. women's <laughs> team just brings something that the men never will. And maybe for England, it's the lionesses. And if you start thinking like that, you've won so much more than anything that a world than any silly tournament can give. I say this as a way to like try and you know uh, make you feel better, but yeah, I do mean yeah. it. But I truly <laughs> mean it because it is it is something to see and marvel at you know watching the u.s women win all these world cups and these amazing tournaments and just the sheer magnitude of what it means to little girls and oh yeah all the women across this country and and then around the world and the lionesses are doing that and that's so much more important and that's and that's what we got to be excited about <laughs> you want more it's, it's better than i want i want more i want both <laughs> yeah there you go all right fine <laughs> I'll, I'll only get over that Euro loss in penalties if England wins something. And I, I just don't think it's going to happen anytime soon now. I think that the chance has been and gone. But anyway, that's a whole other matter. But <laughs> that's think, a whole other recording. We'll do that next yeah, time. Maybe, exactly, exactly. maybe the follow-up book is The Nearly Men of the Euro. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we could get into that one. <laughs> I want to one... think about a country like Argentina not having won something in that time, though. In South America, the, the, a country like Argentina not winning the Copa America is crazy because there's only two or three good teams and they never always play their best teams. You, you'd think they'd have managed to win it by that time. There's so few in it. It's much more winnable than the Euros. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the talent is spread so well across so many countries. Uh, that can all be contenders in any given year. It's rare in the Euros that there's one team head and shoulders above everybody else. You know, Italy were good last summer, absolutely, but they were one of a bunch of good teams that could right. have won it. Um, you know, Spain were excellent. Obviously, England got yeah. close. 
um, Belgium were a good team and so on. You know, there were several, France, if they hadn't screwed up, there were several teams who were good enough to win that tournament. In a Copa America, that's not usually true. So for them not to have won something all that time and to finally get it done last year uh, for Messi, if he'd gone through his career without winning a Copa America, it would have been astonishing. Absolutely. In a lot of ways, it would have mimicked the career of the great Johan Cruyff, where he's great at game-changing on club level. But international, like, how do you not win it? How does he not have a trophy? How does he not, yeah. you know? It's it's quite, it is quite astonishing. Um, and I'm curious to see what happens in, in a few months' time in the Middle East. I wonder if it is really going to be his year, because this is probably the last... The last dance, and I hate to reference Michael Jordan again, but <laughs> I'll never not actually hate referencing Michael Jordan. But it's you know we're on, we are on a football podcast after all, so um, it is oh, it's absolutely it's his last chance, absolutely. And yeah. Argentina is another; it's a strong squad again. But yeah, are, are they really gonna gonna win it? I I can't see it myself. I don't think they're quite at that level. This might come back to hurt me, um, <laughs> but I, know, I, I don't think they're quite there. They'll, I think they'll be close, but not quite. Right. Um, yeah, but I mean, equally, you know, the greatest players don't have to win the tournament. It's a lot to do with where you happen to be from and what era you're born in. You know, if, right. if you, there's so many greatest players who never even got to a World Cup just because of where they're from. You think of George Best, George Weyer, um, yeah. Ryan Giggs, for example. I mean, players like this who are really, really good players are never going to get close to winning it because they never even got to it. Um, there's others who are fabulous players, like Lewandowski currently. Mm-hmm. You know, Poland are never going to win a World Cup at the moment. They've been close in the past. They've had great teams in the past, but now they've got one great player. Right. And that doesn't, that doesn't win you a World Cup. Um, so it's a lot of luck. Um, you know, your Italian background, Sal, you know, in Italy, there's been so much strength in depth throughout the years that the peaks and troughs, the peaks tend to result in trophies and the troughs tend to result in either a first round exit or the occasional lack of qualifying for well, you know, or utter embarrassment and shame. It's really, it's, it <laughs> but you know that the peak is never going to be that far away. Even you've had two disastrous world cups without qualifying, which is astonishing in the modern age for a country like Italy. Right. But what was in between it? A tournament victory. You know, I, I would swap that. <laughs> okay. I, it's it's it is it is weird because it's what you said you know growing up it was either Argentina Brazil Italy West Germany like those were the four best countries in the world um, always in a final always in doing something always doing so to not qualify the first time it felt like a funeral then you win last summer the Euro and it's oh man it's this ecstasy that is just. I don't even know how to describe it. And I'm sorry, Aiden. I don't mean to be throwing salt. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. I've never experienced it. But, but here's the thing. <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing, though. You, at least you get to go to the following final. We get so <laughs> drunk on the idea that we won this trophy and the job is done. Oh, wait, we're not. Th- it's so typical Italian where you're just so, and especially Italian party mode, where we as a culture will be so anxiety fueled about everything, money, what, how our appearances, what, you know, worrying about things that are beyond our control tomorrow. Like what, if what's the weather going to be like, it could ruin plan, you know, it, we prick 
and prong at everything was so anxiety fueled but when something wonderful happens suddenly you just erase all that fear and you forget and then you learn the hard way that you really shouldn't forget that you know maybe 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 having a little in the voice in the back of your head saying hey you've won this great trophy but guess what you still have more work to do well, that's so just it. sometimes you need to yeah sometimes you need to change and move on if you think in Italy's past, so we mentioned 82 and Paolo Rossi and that story, which was a, you know, a fabulous, fabulous story, but really that should have been the end of that story. Right. Uh, you know, the set, they'd been great in 78. And then um, in 82, they, they found a way and it was a great, great story, but that should have been the end. But instead they sort of kept, you know, they kept the same manager kept, and he then kept faith with a, a large core of the same players, but it, they had a disastrous Euros following it. They, they didn't some didn't even qualify. It's not that they didn't even qualify. They finished way down in the qualifying group and only beat Cyprus. That's their only win. Then they had a poor World Cup in 86 and only then did things change. And they built through success in a good performance in 88 and then into 1990. Whereas you, you kind of look now, well, okay, yeah, great. You had the, the problems in 2018, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was one playoff that didn't quite go well. So you can kind of overlook it a little bit and think, well, it just didn't have the luck because look what we did next. We are a good team. We've succeeded. But maybe, again, that was the point to change a little right. bit more. Maybe it was hampered because the World Cup qualifying was already part through by this stage and it was all a bit weird because of the timings and COVID and so on. But maybe something more should have changed because, again, it looks like, I don't know, tournament complacency or arrogance to lose to North Macedonia. Like not even a not even a good team if that's not being too rude. No, it's it's it, it, you're right. It is it's it, no, but that combination, it's an unhealthy combination of complacency and arrogance. And that's and it's that, easy to fall into that trap though. It's very I would say it would be, I don't know, but if having won a, a tournament, you think, you, you think, well, yeah, it's easy. England did this in the past of maintaining the 66 setup all the way through to 74 qualifying. And only then when it, when that went wrong, did things change? It's almost as if you, you know, either you accept that things change tournament to tournament every cycle, which Italy had been doing in recent years up until now with Mancini, you know, each, each coach seemed to just be having a two year cycle and then they're gone and the next one's in. And sometimes that's better because you always get a little clean slate. But I guess victory kind of gets in the way of that a little bit uh, and makes you want to, to cling on to it a bit longer. Enjoy, enjoy the afterglow of it, but maybe a little too long. Yeah, it's a, it's a little too long. The party can be cut down just just slightly. But I guess, <laughs> but I guess all things considered, you know, it's it's there's a victory there so yes it, you're right it does i when I, i'm watching it from your perspective you're right so thank you for giving me that uh, i want one final question on the book and then i want to get into some of your other work and passions here but do you find a common thread among the teams who failed to win the trophy the world cup trophy in their respective eras um the common thread is that they've left something behind now you mentioned Johan Cruyff earlier. So he's the most obvious example of this. And he's the one who has talked at length about how that team, his team, were remembered far better than the winners of the tournament. And yeah. therefore, perhaps they were the real winners after all. And that's going to the extreme. You know, the way many people think of that Dutch team and that era is, is so fondly um, 
uh, that that's the sort of extreme of it, but there's always an element of that. So it's it's leaving some sort of legacy. Now that could come in various different forms. It could be the beautiful football. It could be a new style and approach. So you could look at Hungary in the 50s as well as the Dutch for that. You could look at Brazil in 82 and the, the sheer beauty and exoticism and artistry of it all, um, sticking to your principles almost to a fault. Um, when it, you know, they could have seen that game out against Italy and just played for the draw and been a bit more pragmatic and got through, but that would have been a, to betray everything they held dear about their approach. And, and so they, they sort of went down in a blaze of glory, but sticking, sticking rigidly to their principles. And there's, there's something lasting in that, even if it then had the impact. And this is another element, the flip side of that legacy is that football and it probably would have changed anyway, but it, it moved towards the more pragma pragmatic to the point by 1990, things were utterly pragmatic. Only eight years later, two World Cups later, you know, 86 was a little bit cross between the two. And then by 1990, it was all utterly pragmatic. And maybe things would have changed anyway, but it made it feel like it was a sort of significant end point for that sort of free, free expressive beauty um, to, to, as, a, as a way to try and achieve victory. So I, I think that the recurring theme, as well as the pain, the obvious pain and the angst of it all, is that there's some sort of legacy. The, you could look further back, I mentioned Brazil in 1950 before, the obvious legacy there of you know, getting carried away as a host in Italy in 1990 can probably have an element of this, but Brazil took it to other extremes in, in 1950. And the impact that that defeat had on the nation as a whole, and, and this is, an, is another theme. It affects not just football, but it affects nations. It affects entire populations. And Brazil, uh, at that time, were trying to sort of portray themselves as this outward-looking, forward-thinking, developing power, you know, constantly comparing themselves to Europe uh, in terms of their progress. You know, let's build this massive stadium to show how great and progressive we are. We'll ho host this great World Cup and we'll win it in our great stadium at the heart of Rio. But then it all went horribly wrong as the pressure just piled down that everyone was putting onto these players uh, for things that weren't necessarily to do with football. And this affected how Brazilian people thought about themselves as a nation. Yeah, it seems weird to think of it now for all the success that they've had. But at the time, they'd never won a World Cup and they started to doubt that they ever could because they thought the thought process became, well, what's wrong about us? What is it about us that is inherently uh, resulting in defeat when it matters most? And they thought of uh, other social issues. Um, you know, the, the, the black players in the team took the most flack, took the most blame, most famously the goalkeeper. But equally, they start to think, well, if we fail when it matters most on the football field, what about something more important? What about if we're involved in a war? Will we fail then also? Is there something inherently defeatist about us? Uh, it just seems so weird to think that about Brazil, given everything that's happened. But that is how it felt at the time uh, to the Brazilian people. Uh, so, yes, legacy in the whole uh, the gamut of, of ways that can come across footballing legacy, uh, artistry, uh, social, political and, and uh, national legacy as well. So it's, it's the whole variety, the whole rainbow of different ways that can be interpreted and, and talked about. But it's always about some sort of lasting legacy that this defeat caused uh, or, or caused people to think of. I never, 
ever thought of it in that perspective. And I love it. This is why this is why this podcast <laughs> is in existence because it's to learn and it's wow, it's it that is yeah, it, it, wow. It that kind of left me kind of left me speechless, man. I'm going to we're going to move away from the book and that's a great way to just end that part of the podcast here. But as stated in the intro, you're part of the team that creates the brilliant these football times. I look at those issues as top tier of soccer writing, featuring the most coveted writers in the world on a given topic about the beautiful game. And if you ever need a writer, please feel free to call me. But <laughs> shameless, shameless self plugs aside, how did the team come about to create this absolutely impeccable and perfect magazine? Yeah, it's kind of just evolved. Certainly from my perspective, I just got involved it's going back a few years now, but initially just submitting articles to the website. So I think that it, it's not as sort of prolific online now as it used to be with more magazine uh, content than, than online, I think, nowadays. But then it was there was a lot of this online content and you could submit stuff and, and get yourself published if it was good enough. And that's how I ended up getting in. Um, but that's at the sort of lowest level of it all. You gradually just through doing that again and again and again, work your way up the up the chain, if you like, um, within there. So I wasn't part of the magazines when they first came along. Uh, I was still sort of a bit lower down in, in the pecking order at that point as just a newer writer. I hadn't established myself. I hadn't done it as much as others, and I hadn't sort of reached that, that level, if you like. But it gradually grew for me from there as the magazine has grown. So I, I, I've gradually got more and more involved uh, in, in what's in what's being produced, which is absolutely terrific to do so because it's kind of like the first time you, you become part of that that group that's working on a magazine or or the senior leadership or or working on the podcasts. It's like when you're first involved, it's a bit like a, a look behind the curtain. You know, this is you're seeing the things that you've seen as a customer. You know, I got the first magazines as a customer and read them uh, and loved them. I'd, I'd wrote it, written online frequently for the for the website and, and read all sorts of other great articles that I enjoyed reading from these guys who I was now joining to be part of. Um, and that, that felt sort of great to, to do so. But then it's grown even more from there. Like the magazines have become even more uh, prolific. They've become more elaborate, I think, in terms of the artwork that goes yeah. into it, the production levels and so on. Um, obviously I only deal with the writing side of it, but there's an awful lot more that goes into it from that. You know, we have discussions about what topics to cover, what themes to cover. Um, you can never satisfy everybody, of course. You know, there's always a clamor to cover this club or that club or, or this country or that country or, and so on. North America and USA is one that's frequently mentioned, uh, which we haven't covered yet. You know, whether, whether we end up doing something more contemporary uh, or whether we look back to things like the NASL days, right. uh, or whether it's a mixture of both, perhaps, I don't know. But maybe, you know, that's one that, that is often talked about, as well as people say, where's the Man United issue? Where's the Rangers? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what it is, it is so prolific, though, in just how it's all, and when that issue comes out, it's even if I don't like the team, or even if I'm not familiar with the subject, you still rush to get it because not only are they so coveted, but it's everything you said. It's 
it's the packaging of not just great writing, but it's the artwork and it's all the appeal and it's, and it's a beautiful history lesson for like under 20 bucks, which is great. You know, you feel like you're taking a, you know, university level class in just two, 300 pages. And this is great. You know, when you close those issues, it's like, yes, I, you can have the cocky confidence of just i'm an expert on this subject and the only thing i know of is, is using it as a point of reference is these football times but that's how good it is and yeah i'm excited for an eventual man united issue as i am in nasl <laughs> but i'm more excited about the things that i don't know like you guys had done a river issue river plot issue and i was like yes this you know you have a new boca juniors issue coming out which Again, like it's it's so cool to see that even teams that and clubs may that don't need to be talked about all the time, or no, that aren't talked about maybe nearly as enough outside of their region or by their fans, get the same shine. That yeah, and it's great. It's great to them. highlight these highlight these uh, clubs. Here. You're totally right that some of the picks for clubs haven't been. The obvious super clubs, if you like, we, we kind of steered away from them at first, deliberately so to sort of focus on on, on others that maybe were a little more, I, I hesitate to say hipster, but, you know, slightly alternative <laughs> from those that are sort of the Super League uh, selection. But, you know, there comes a point where you need to focus on them as well. So you get a nice balance, a nice mix. Yeah. But there's always there's always more to do. But you talk there about uh, the sort of learning and the 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 knowledge you can get through reading. Well, that's the same for me. <laughs> it's the same for... So it does work stories. both ways then? It, it does totally. It's a fantastic thing to be involved in when you're writing them. I absolutely love the whole process because once we've decided on on the topic and that's you know a bit of a discussion in the senior, senior leadership, but then you know the ultimate call is down to Omar, the editor, um, to, to sort of collate the views and, and make the final call. But once that's been done and we've gathered the sort of topics that are going to be looked at and, and you've you've sort of, I don't know, put a pitch in for a certain topic or put your hand up to, to cover one and you, you've got that assigned to yourself. It's like, right, I've got a few weeks here to really delve into this subject. So maybe this is, let's take, we did a Ronaldo one not too far back. Right. Uh, the Brazilian Ronaldo. And I was looking at um, not, not, not any of his prime, prime years, but I was looking at his uh, latter days at AC Milan and then at Corinthians. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, not so well known, um, but a, a, a sort of intriguing part of the story. And I knew little bits of it, sure, but not as well as I'd known things about his time at Real Madrid or Inter Milan. And, mm -hmm. so, um, and so I got to do a bunch of research. You get to look at all sorts of other news articles and websites or videos and all sorts of clips and so on. And it, it's really educational to to look into to write about so sometimes you're writing a piece where you know really well there's a there's a, a magazine that has been written but not yet launched where i've written a piece so I, I can't really go into what that's about at this point but it's a subject <laughs> matter where i i know far more about it just because of my own past and therefore it was easier to write about from that perspective but even then there's other bits you're still looking up and, and working out so, but sometimes it's you, you, you really need to do a lot of research and go into it. And then, as you say, you get the magazine. It, it lands on my doorstep the same time it lands on anyone else's. Um, and you, you open it up and you see the glorious artwork. And I, yeah, sure, I've had a sneak preview of what the cover would be like, but I don't know what the artwork that goes alongside my pieces is until I get to look at it. And that's, you know, that's the first thing you look at. You open it up and you go to find your own article 
uh, you don't read it again because you know you probably find a mistake that you don't want to see. But you, you have a look at the artwork of it, and you think, oh yes, this 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 goes really well alongside. But then you flick through and look at the rest of it, and and read the articles everyone else has done, and look at the the artwork of those as well. And yeah, no matter how much you think you know about a subject, there's so much more that you glean just from reading what my colleagues have written there, uh, and that's when I've been heavily involved in it. So, you know, you're absolutely right. There's, no matter how much you know about football, reading any of these, there's bound to be things that you'll, you'll pick up that you didn't, because the focus, if you look at one club with 12, 13 articles of fairly in-depth, you know, you, you're gonna, there's going to be all sorts of new stuff there, and different perspectives as well, even if it is stuff that you know about. That's the beauty of it too. And is that if you go into every issue with an open mind, as you should approach, you know, most things in life, it really, it becomes so much more satisfactory because you just walk away with just so much more. So just please give my best to that team and give everybody a pat on the back and just say, <laughs> thank you. Just as a fan, just thank you. Just, it, it really. Oh, that's so good to hear. Like you were saying about your podcast, it's so good to hear because you, you do these things and you kind of just work in, independently or in your own little group and it's when it goes out into the big bad world and other people pick it up and and enjoy it and that's that's such a good feeling and it's a good thing to hear so thank you you're welcome you're and i mean it and the other thing too is that i want to just just i don't know how coveted you realize these issues are that i've so obviously you print so many it's a supply and demand thing and i know it's a small team doing <laughs> doing the lord's work really and so they sell out quite quickly so every once in a while where it's like oh i wanted this issue let me go look on ebay um have you ever seen the markup of how much these issues go for on ebay yeah i have i can't believe it i know congratulations <laughs> <laughs> i know they, well maybe this is part of the ploy you know it, maybe <laughs> right? this maybe this, you know, print them in limited numbers and then we can flog them off on eBay. No, no, that's not what happens. That's not what happens. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is, it, you're absolutely right. It's astonishing. But people want to keep the collection going. Um, yeah. And you can understand that aspect. People who've got everything bar one, <laughs> the frustration must be quite something for that. It, it's great. And that's such a cool thing. You know, you've now made it this great, collector's item i remember back in the 90s to get music you'd trade mixtapes here in in the new york area and it was always that coveted if you wanted to be a completist get that mixtape or get this demo of whatever of a band or a rapper that you liked and you can't do that anymore because of you know everything's accessible but now this is sort of a very similar approach is that oh I, I want that issue i need that issue and now i'm gonna just have to shell out for it <laughs> but <laughs> speaking of money and shelling out for things and there's a perfect segue or maybe it's not a perfect segue and i'm just trying to find a bridge <laughs> and you know but uh i've taken so much more of your time but there's still just two two more segments i just want to get to um because aiden i can literally chat for you for hours because you're now we're entering a whole new world because we're going to talk about your club team and we're also yeah. going to talk about what's going on there. So you're a Newcastle fan, as mentioned, a team that has gone through a complete financial revolution in the last year. What has it been like seeing this monetary injection? How do you feel about who is behind it? Yeah, I know. I feel uncomfortable and conflicted. Um, on the one hand, the, the preceding 14 years of the previous ownership now, I don't know how well known Mike Ashley, the previous owner, is um, across in the States, but he owns a sort of um, a very 
a very uh, well successful sports brand, well, sports business, sportswear, mm-hmm. sports uh, items, and so on shops and online. But his his philosophy has always been his success has been founded on uh, um, pile them high and sell them cheap, and that's how he tried to run the football club as well. He he wasn't in it for any success or glory at all. He was in it simply for free advertising for his brand. Um, you know, all the branding that was on Newcastle Stadium and the club shop and so on wasn't paid for. It was just put there. Um, he he didn't want to shell out beyond the necessary to try and keep Newcastle just about in the Premier League. He didn't want to go beyond that. You know, he wanted to spend the minimum. He was a gambler, essentially, as well. And a couple of times that gamble failed and Newcastle went down. Um but other times it just about succeeded as they scraped through. The one thing he hated the most was when Newcastle did quite well for one year under Pardew about a decade ago and finished fifth. He was furious at that because then they qualified for the Europa League. <laughs> and, um, you know, really most clubs would have possibly bolstered the squad a little bit, you know, right. padded out a little with, even if it's not great quality, but, you know, a few more numbers in the first team squad, because you're going to be playing more games, you need a bit more rotation. But now he was fuming at that because he really didn't want it. And a couple of times, you know, he's had to do, uh, he had to do desperate January transfer business just to try and save the club from the drop. And, you know, he kind of massively resented having to fork out just to keep the money rolling in from all the TV deals, the lucrative deals that you get from being in the Premier League. Um, you know, it's a very lucrative business just being in the Premier League without those teams who actually strive for success they had a deliberate stated policy of not trying to win the cups because they got in the way of staying in the league so getting knocked out of any cup at the earliest opportunity was part of the plan um there was no attempt to achieve anything so with the backdrop of that to then suddenly get a takeover you know this is where a lot of the joy (laughs) that that newcastle fans have shown comes from however I'm also uncomfortable with it because of where it's come from. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not alone in this. You know, it, it's kind of easy to look at the, the pictures on television and think and see the full stands and the flags waving and and the joy that the new era has brought and to and to think, well, Newcastle fans are all happy with this and all just, you know, ignoring it for the for the price of a little bit of success or or the suggestion of possible success further down the line. And that's not true. There are plenty of dissenting voices, but as with other clubs that have gone before, and I'm not equating them to the same scale as Saudi Arabia in terms of ownership necessarily, but Manchester City's ownership, PSG's ownership, you can look at Chelsea and Abramovich and his ties to Putin, which obviously um, caused a bit of a change there in recent months as well. Right. You know, there's a lot of these things have been going on, and I think it's, They've escalated up and up and up until to now the point where the, the next natural ownership was was a Saudi, you know, a, a murderous regime that's, you know, that runs a totalitarian state to some respects um, uh, and is conducting wars that are being funded by the West as well. Yeah. Because they happen to have oil. Um you know, it, it's it's very very uncomfortable on the footballing side. If if and I, I you know I can't necessarily do this that easy. I am uncomfortable with. It. I'm uneasy with it. On the pure footballing side, there's a little bit of the excitement that the mid '90s had under Keegan, mm-hmm. but 
I say a little bit of it because it, it's always got that asterisk against it in my mind. I'm also, I feel as a football fan, and this sounds weird given everything we just talked about, about, you know, the pain of England and, and various things and Newcastle in the 90s. I, I, it turns out that I'm more comfortable with, with defeat than success. <laughs> Not that I've actually experienced it either with club or country yet, but it feels like it will be a little bit hollow if it comes along. And that's, that's a bit of a shame because it would have been, you know, it, it won't feel the same as it would have done had Newcastle won the league in 1996 under Kevin Keegan when they really should have done. That would have felt so fulfilling, so glorious and so sort of justified given how well they played and the way the whole city was galvanised on the back of it. Now, I, maybe it's just my age as well that comes into that, but it doesn't feel as though it would be quite as fulfilling. It would feel a little bit like... Um, more like success in a video game, perhaps, you know, where you, you can just build the squad you like. Uh, you can do various cheats to get your way through. Um, and maybe it feels a little bit like that. I still don't think success is a given because, you know, there's so many other big, powerful clubs, but it is now possible and certainly improvement is possible. Hand in hand with this, I've got, I've got a young son as well. He's, he's nine and my daughter as well, seven. So they've both been along and experience the, the atmosphere as it is now. And the thing is, I, I could you know entirely stick to hardened principles and refuse to go, but then I'd be de denying them as well. And maybe that makes me a hypocrite, but you know, part of me wants them to experience what going to a big football club is like and, and to get some of the joy that I had as a young lad and to try and you know to, to plant the seed, to plant the bug and let it grow in them about this great sport and what it can bring and the, the other stories that without being so blinkered in your pursuit of just one team and so many people this is what I find I've, I've never been like this and I don't quite fully understand it whilst also understanding why other people are a bit like this is that they're so blinkered in in the club support uh and, and can't see anything else right and this is where this is hardly just a Newcastle thing at all you know this, this is this every club has exactly the same mm -hmm. that people can only think of their club so everything is through the prism of of what it means to that club so yes in Newcastle terms that means the money the new signings and potential development towards Europe Champions League and maybe even the Premier League at some point you never know uh, but they're so blinkered on that and to, they can't see anything but what 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 this what does this mean for Newcastle United you know the kind of people who would think a player going on international duty um, is a bad thing because they might get tired for the next Newcastle game or, or might get an injury. And I'm using Newcastle as an example here because that's what we're discussing. But, you know, <laughs> Liverpool fans would be the same. Man United fans would be the same. Chelsea, the same. It, it's the same everywhere. And I, I, don't, I don't get that because I've always had a slightly more wider approach, a holistic approach. You know, I, as we talked about World Cups, I can appreciate other teams as much as I can England at times because, frankly, it would be a bit disappointing if I only focused on England. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I get the same with the clubs. Even So even through years of disappointment, people remain this blinkered, no matter which club it is. And I don't quite get that as much. But that's where people can become so wholly accepting and, and beyond that can defend, uh, defend the, the owners to the hilt. People do this. People have defended Roman Abramovich to the hilt. People have defended the Abu Dhabi group. People have defended um, the Liverpool owner, um, 
from the FSG group, so I've forgotten his name, but the, the Fenway Sports Group from Boston, uh, who, you know, they were all wanting to leave the league and just to betray everything their club represented to make more money in a Super League. People will defend them to the hilt because they represent their club. And that's where the sports washing element works to some respect, because you've got this whole band of cheerleaders just suddenly come along because they happen to wear the same color shirt as you. Um, so yeah, that side of it leaves me very uneasy. So I, I think any success that comes along will be a little bit hollow, whilst there is also that bit of me that the hypocrite side, but also would like Newcastle to finally win something. <laughs> Look, and that's okay. Here's the thing. You've opened up a beat and a, man, I really, this episode could be five hours long. Um, but and that's great. And, I, and look, I, I got the time, man. I'm off today. Um, but uh, here's the thing. For anyone that ever says that politics don't belong in sport, fuck off. Because here's the th- or, or because this is, a, this is proof positive of that. And that politi- sports are politics. And it is all of that. And what you're saying about the blinkeredness, we now live in an era where, oh, ideologically we're on the same team but that should not be the case and it's the same and you'll defend i don't know terrible politicians and this is, goes on in every country you know this is not just an american thing it's not a british thing but it's 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 everything that you just said if you just pluck out the word sport and insert politics or you know ideology it's it's the same principles and it's sort of mind blowing and it, it kind of now, you know, we see so much money in the cash flow that's getting coming. And obviously the, the Premier League has got so the wealthiest league in the world. And now you're having people come in with infinite amounts of cash. But, you know, no one really everyone's literally turning a blind eye to the vetting process of does this look right? Should we? But this is the same in society as well. So right. You're 100 percent. That's the point. Both yeah. in countries, we're both in countries whose governments fully endorse anything any saudi investment you're right they want, they want the oil they want the cheap oil they want the energy and um and they want the money that a country as rich as saudi can plow into into our countries the go- our governments both want this they're both they're both proper saudi they supply weapons to saudi right um and, and this is the thing and, and yet uh, the focus ends up being on football fans for um for having to sort of make that uh, moral decision about it, whereas the rest of society doesn't. And I get why, because it's it's something that they didn't have to come into and there should be rules, as you say, that are a bit more stringent and uh, stop this kind of thing. But the, the door's been left open too long for that now. There's no real going back in terms I'll of... Never yeah. But it, it's, it's a, it goes beyond that. Like you say, it's, it's the whole political and society as well. We, we just embrace money, money, money. Just bring more money. We don't care what you do as long as you bring more money. And that's, yeah, there'll be an end point to it eventually, but who knows when and how ugly that'll be. Yeah, you know, it's... Oh, man, we had such a great podcast discussion and now I'm depressed. (laughs) Um, But I want to talk about the Newcastle fans and community. So my only point of reference of Newcastle is the delicious brown ale 
Alan Shearer, <laughs> the beloved football film Goal, The Dream Begins. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> take me through a tour of what Newcastle is like and what the people are like and what does it mean to come from this working class town that just constantly is is facing grit and tenacity and just doing everything in their power to overcome obstacles. Yeah, you're absolutely right in that because it's Newcastle as a city is, you know, this is the northeast of England. So we're, we're far closer to um, Edinburgh as a capital of Scotland. We're far more uh, closer ties to Scotland and Scottish people than we are to the majority of England. Um, you know, the political powers of London and Westminster feels worlds away to people in this part. Now, this sound, I know we're talking a much smaller nation than the USA, so that sounds a little ridiculous, but it, culturally that's that's the case. Um, it's, a, it's a former industrial heart, uh, heart of the country, and therefore, you know, it's in decline. I'm sure there are similar places in the USA where former industrial yeah. uh, hotbed where it, it, it's it's seen better days detroit um, detroit is like the best yeah. example of that you know yeah exactly like that, that kind of thing and that, that's that's the case for many northern cities that have since been neglected uh they're sort of booming again though in different ways now um but that was the sort of tradition the the the, the truth of the cities as i was growing up anyway in the 80s um so there's always that little bit of resentment i guess towards other parts of the country or the south in particular but that sort of creates this sort of pride and hardened image um which you know liverpool and manchester have as well and newcastle very much so uh the pride in your region the pride of where you're from there's there's a there's a certain pride in, you know, I don't have a particularly strong Geordie accent, but those that do take pride in not being able to be understood and things like that, it's almost a dialect rather than an accent at times, things like that. Then you build in the fact that Newcastle is a smaller city than some of those others I'm mentioning. So uh, Liverpool, obviously, and Manchester, much bigger cities, and in, in football terms, two club cities. Um, I think Leeds is probably the only comparison as a one-club city in terms of its size, and I think Leeds is a little bit bigger than Newcastle. Um, but beyond that, there's no other cities where it is just one club that is at the heart of it in terms of football. So the football club, um, and this goes back through through all the years, all the decades, uh, 150 years uh, probably also since since the first clubs that Newcastle United grew out of, um, it, it becomes the sort of symbol, the 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 thing that everybody's drawn towards. This area has always been a hotbed of, of football in terms of interest and and at times in terms of talent. Although that's possibly not so much at the moment as it has been in the past. You think of you mentioned Shearer, but you think of people like Peter Beasley, Chris Waddle, Paul Gascoigne, and so on. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Brian Robson, uh, then you go back, uh, Bobby Charlton, Jack Charlton, and so on. You know, these are all people from this area. Um, there's, there's a fine string of talent that's come from this part of, of England. Uh, but a lot of the focus for the people, not just in Newcastle, but sort of north of Newcastle as well, uh, through Northumberland and, and beyond, and also slightly to the south before you start venturing into Sunderland territory, which isn't very far away, um, 
but this is you know the, the areas in between are a bit more mixed it's it's the focal point it is the only club that people follow and yeah you get isolated people who you know follow man united just because they saw their, their dad saw them once and told them they were the best or something like that but uh, those crazy fools who follow other teams but <clears throat> for the majority it, it's newcastle united and then you add in the fact that um the stadium itself is so prominent in the heart of the city now this makes it quite rare um you know, there are many stadiums in England that are within a city that might be contrasted to newer ones, which tend to be built out of a city, which is possibly how many are in America as well. You know, they're built out of town, newer stadiums to, yeah. to allow more space and access and so on. Many stadiums in England are still within the city uh, for where they grew up. But Newcastle, even beyond that, is right in the city centre. And that is quite rare, uh, given the sort of land and, and space and so on. And... It's slightly on a hill as well. So the, the stadium, and, and it's grown and become bigger and bigger, you can see it for, for miles. And it sort of sits, we call it the cathedral on the hill. It sits a little bit on a hill um, and it dominates. On a match day, if you happen to not be in the stadium, but people who are shopping in the nearby sort of main shopping streets of the city, you can hear it all. <laughs> you can hear the crowd noise. You can hear the ebbs and flows of all the action. If there's a goal, my God, you can certainly hear it. And it, it just becomes such a central focal point that absorbs everything. People who don't follow football in this area still know a lot about Newcastle United. They know when things are going well or things are going badly because it, it kind of becomes the heartbeat of the region, the identity of a whole region and city. Um, so that, that's, why, that's where it becomes such a big deal to so many people. Uh, if you add in the fact that, as I said at the start, that it's a bit of a hard luck story in terms of a part of the country, it's, you know, it's not one of the most prosperous areas. That's not to say there aren't prosperous areas around here, because there certainly are. But in, in overall sort of uh, standard of living or um, average wages and things like that, it, it's of the lower end of the spectrum mm. for, for England uh, when you average it all out. And so the, that extra pride comes from, from what is representing your city to the rest of the country and at times to, to Europe as well is, or well, I guess even more globally now in, in the modern era in terms, of, uh, in terms of the Premier League and its exposure. That Newcastle United symbolises this part of the country, this part of the world. And well, I've, I've travelled all over and I've been to various places and people ask where I'm from. And whenever I say it's two things come to mind, one is the beer, like you say, and the other is the football club. And having that sort of connection and everyone knowing about it gives you a little bit of source of pride. You know, that, that would be the case for a lot of people from a lot of places. But, you know, in some cases, you may not know who somebody would support because you would identify maybe there's a couple of clubs. Maybe you'd say Man United or Man City. Maybe you say Liverpool or Everton. But here, there's only one. Um, and that, I think adds to the pride, it adds to the, uh, adds to the allure of the club, I think. But it also, it, it's got positives and negatives, though, because it means that so much focus is put on, on the club. And as you mentioned with Italy, I think it's a little bit similar without the sort of Latin temperament side to it, but it's either it's the boom and bust kind of mentality. Yeah. Newcastle has a bit of a reputation as a party town, and I think they sort of enjoy the good times and then 
have the the depressive hangover that follows. So I think that, <laughs> that that's something in the in the nature of, of the people, and that therefore follows into the support. And I think yeah, there's an element of that that the, the highs are enjoyed too too well, and the, the lows are just the depths of despair. <laughs> but it, it, it's it's a it's a symbol of the region basically, and that's yeah, a one club city in a downtrodden area that uh, that produces the pride and therefore you know it, it's 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 a symbol of being a geordie and being of being from newcastle that's beautiful hey oh, aiden thank you i've got three more questions for you these are the my favorite part of the podcast <laughs> rapid fire questions and then i'll finally okay. let you go <laughs> thank you so much for your time not at all. No, I, we could go on for hours. We really could. This really could have been a five, six hour podcast. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, the book is called The Nearly Men. Go pick it up. Go read it. Go enjoy it and do it all before December when the next World Cup kicks off. And this yes. episode should, in theory, run before that. So we'll be this is a great advertisement still. Now time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City. But you can get it anywhere in the world from modcup.com. Mod Cup, drink modern coffee. Use code MUNDIAL for 10% off your first order. Final three questions. Starting number one. If you could bring back one retired player to your club, alive or dead, who would it be and why? <laughs> Okay, well, in terms of sheer goal scoring potential, it would be Alan Shearer. Um, but added to that, though, there's some others who have entertained me more than him, and maybe that's sacrilege to say so. But there's others that I've just found more fun. Um, what you got? Yeah, I, that's just all like Tino Asprey. I just okay. loved him, and his time at Newcastle was so exciting. But yeah, I guess you're making me say one, in which case I'll say Alan Shearer because we need a lot of goals. Okay. Now, normally I preface this question with guests to say money is not an option, but now this is not actual fact. Money is not an option, and your club can sign one player <laughs> today. <laughs> one player that's active, African player today, who would it be and why? Who would you sign? Oh, my goodness. We need somebody. I think what Newcastle right now needs is some sort of creative forward that can lay the chances on a little more and that's what's been missing so oh crikey <laughs> it, it's funny because as you say the money in your object is right. <laughs> well now here's the thing what's funny is is that so like i'm a huge ac milan fan like that's my club but my blood club like the team that you know where my family comes from is palermo and they just got bought by the manchester city group so in my head, I constantly play fantasy football, but on a small, much smaller scale, <laughs> I have the same duality where I'm like, look, I don't care. Just let Palermo win something. Come on, man. But at this, mm -hmm. we can sign anybody. Let's get Holland next year. You know, like we can do whatever we want. But at the same time, I say to myself, like, eh, you know, at what cost? So here's the thing. In your case, I'm going to I'm going to augment this just a little bit. Human rights issues aside, who would you yeah. pick? I think I feel like Haaland is too obvious a pick. So I, the player I really, really like uh, in recent years, Kevin De Bruyne. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'd love to see him. But it's not ever going to happen, no matter how much money we have. <laughs> but that will, that will be lovely. All righty, all righty. And finally, Aiden, what has been your favourite moment as a fan? Well, it's not success, 
Um, <laughs> uh, I think mm, when it comes to Newcastle, can I answer this in two parts? Sure. Uh, if I can. When yeah, it absolutely. Newcastle, it's, it's your question. You answer however you like. Cool. When it comes to Newcastle, then my favourite it was the era. It was the Kevin Keegan managerial era in the mid-1990s. It was so exciting. But this coincided with um, me coming through my final years at school and then university. And, and so that kind of time, you know, from seven, 16, 17 up to about 22 or something like that was perfect time for me to be able to go a lot, to go with friends. Even I was, I was in a different city at university, but when I came back, you know, it was all still happening. It was all the big big news it was all the big deal the city itself was so energized by it all it was it was on a high it was buzzing and that was a glorious time so that is without doubt the best memory of a period of time I've got as a Newcastle fan it would be hard to pick out a particular game or incident from that um, without ending up getting all sad again so I'll leave it with the sort of high <laughs> I don't want to make you depressed that era. Yeah, <laughs> but it was such a t- such a great time, and even though it may have gone wrong at the end, but it's still thought of so fondly. Um, which harks back to the book, you know, it, it, it was a failure that is still makes you feel warm inside because it was so much fun and so joyous and and so unexpected given what had gone before. But the other element to an answer would be, um, and this harks back to the World Cup theme. It would be the early World Cups I remember, so eighty two and eighty six, just as being a sort of wide eyed child just absorbing everything it was also bright in the sunshine from both of those tournaments as well you know spain and mexico uh it was also bright colorful exotic it was so much of the unknown that i never seen before i had the sticker books i had the posters the wall charts and then so much of uh, being able to watch it and just seeing such incredible football from incredible players that was so utterly different from what was available to me at home at that time, you know, I just started going occasionally to games every now and then with my dad uh, at, this, at this kind of time. I didn't go particularly often, but, you know, this, this was at home. I could see poor football of hoofing the ball around on muddy, grassless fields. And this was in the, the top or second flight of English football at the time. It was worlds apart from what it is now uh, in decrepit, falling apart stadiums where the crowds were low because of um, well poor conditions, poor football, and 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 all the sort of hooligan issues that were around at the time. Mm-hmm. To then see this joyous, colourful, exotic, exuberant football on my television coming from what seemed like the other end of the world, with the sound being all a bit tinny, the pictures being a little bit fuzzy, and the football being so good and so beautiful and so exciting. But that just had such an impact. So that's that's the other. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And ladies and gentlemen, if you loved the poetry that Aiden has given us tonight and painting these vivid pictures, please go find and read his work. Aiden, my friend, thank you so, so much for all of your time today. I've taken up your entire afternoon. Uh, <laughs> but I really, really, truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you, Sal. It's been an absolute blast. I've loved it. Uh, I would happily have talked for more time if we if we could. But, you know, the kids probably want their dinner at some point today. So <laughs> we will have to bring it to an end. But no, I absolutely loved it. Really enjoy listening to your podcast and uh, uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed coming on to chat about it all. 
Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.